This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And today, we're discussing the fashion icon behind your favorite fashion icons, Beth Ann Hardison. Beth Ann is the subject and co director of a new documentary about herself called Invisible Beauty. And why shouldn't she be the star of her own documentary? She was a powerful modeling agent in the era of the supermodel. She managed stars like Kimora Lee Simmons and Tyson Beckford. But before all that, she was something of a supermodel herself in New York's swinging 70s. The 70s was a very interesting time, as was the late 60s. At that time in life, anyone with style could be invited anywhere. You just have to have style. You don't have to be famous. So you could be in a room with Truman Capote in a small area or, you know, Salvador Dali or something. Beth Ann had style and a look. She was tall and doe-eyed with deep brown skin and very short natural hair, a different look than the white blondes popular at that time. And Beth Ann lived. She went from working in a button factory to jet-setting around the world to walk for Issey Miyake and Claude Montana. And she rocked a runway alongside the likes of Iman and Pat Cleveland. In 1973, Beth Ann modeled at the Battle of Versailles the historic fashion face-off between Americans and the French. It was very CNBC-seen, and in attendance was the Princess of Monaco and American royalty alike. It was a beautiful night, and Liza and I had a good time. <laughs> Liza Minnelli. Yeah, but Liza yes. and I, we had a good time. And, and then my dear friend, um, Josephine Baker, so when mm-hmm. she saw me there and she had performed for the French all she wanted to do was meet the girl. She she was waving to me. She said, get this. Isn't it funny that you would think that Josephine Baker is asking me to get her backstage? Oh, my gosh. I'm sitting here like my jaw's on the floor. I'm just gagged, to be honest with you. But surrounded by all that glamour, she took notice of how the French crowd was receiving her. To see that many girls of color, too, in one moment was a lot for them to see, too, because they may have had one or two, but never as many. And it was only 10. The rest of her career was devoted to raising that number higher, both in her work as a modeling agent and by bringing together Black models to make the fashion industry listen to their demands for more equity. And her contributions are felt by stars like Zendaya and Naomi Campbell. Without her, the opportunities wouldn't exist for me to do what I love. She's like a second mother to me. I sat down with Beth Ann to hear straight from her how she changed the face of an industry. And why in all the fashion world's frivolity, these images are still powerful. Beth Ann Hardison, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Uh, Thank you so much for having me come on and talk with you. Thank you. You know, moving forward through time from the 70s and the 80s, you became a real authority in the industry. And you worked as a modeling agent and you brokered the careers of so many people. Kamora Lee Simmons, Tyson Beckford. You represented and brought up lots of models of color, but you also represented some white models as well. What was your philosophy when it came to how you pushed for what you wanted to see in fashion image making? It was very interesting because I knew I needed to have a white model agency, quote unquote, meaning that I I needed the the primary um, product to be the same as what my white counterpart had. 
I hmm. knew I was going to have more kids of color. I mm-hmm. knew I would have Asian kids and Latin kids and black kids in it. I knew that because that's who I am. And that's what I want hmm. to see. And mm-hmm. in order for me to do a good job for my industry, I needed to know what was happening with when they booked a white kid. And I could hmm. hear what people would say, you know, like Brides Magazine back in the day. They just never booked anyone of any color to be hmm. in a bridal uh, Never. One day I just said to the editor that was calling, because I had one girl she booked all the time, a brunette girl, right. Catherine Hammond. And I just said, you know, you do know that black people get married. You know, you do know that, right? <laughs> and Mr. Stephen would call me and he said, I, I was asking, I wanted to find Asian models. And I called around and you're the only one that had an Asian model. <laughs> wow. This is the late 80s and going into the early 90s. Eventually it changed. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important if you're in the other neighborhood, you can do better for the opposite neighborhood. Hmm. hmm. How, what do you mean when you say that? I mean, if I'm going to be in the elitist world, if I know what's going on there, then I know how to play the game for the underserved. Mm. Yeah. In the in the doc, you mentioned because you had white models, you were able to see the pay discrepancies yes. also in between the white models and the, and the models of color at your agency. Exactly. You said in Invisible Beauty that when you were young, nothing ever made you want to look like the blonde white girl because there was too much going on in your community. And yeah. I found that so interesting because recently, as you know, the Barbie movie came out and there was a lot of discourse about the Barbie dolls and how they made people feel. And I remember I was like, I had Barbie dolls, but I never felt like I didn't look at the blonde white doll and think, oh, I should look like that. It's just a doll to me because it didn't look like my mom or my sisters or anybody at church. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so I was just it's like, a collectible. Oh, it's a collectible. Exactly. It's a, it's a collectible. It's a collectible. Yeah. It seemed like throughout your career, you had a different take on what beauty is than the fashion industry at large. What is that take that you have on what beauty is? I don't think in the word of beauty so much. I know people say, but you named your film Invisible Beauty. Yeah, I know that. No, everything to me was style. Everything was style. When I started my model agency, it was all style. Everything I did. When I grew up, the guys on the street corner, I would love their shoes, their double pleated pants. I just noticed so much great style that I never thought about this word beauty, but I would always meet the model I was interested in three times before I took them. Hmm. Tyson says often. I say this all the time. I don't think she liked me the first time she met me. Well, I I have to get to know the character because this is not a model agency like other people have model agencies. You've got to have more character than just a model. As much as you had strong relationships throughout the fashion industry, you could see who was getting called in for magazine editorial shoots and who wasn't getting paid as much. In an industry like fashion that's so based on relationships and ingratiating yourself to powerful people, you weren't afraid to make those powerful people uncomfortable. How did you think about how to be effective without compromising either your business or your values? Because I knew that those who I spoke to really respected me. Those I spoke to, I also modeled for. If I said this to them on a phone call and say, you know, I understand that you're asking me for a wonderful black girl. And how many girls are you using? And they say 35 or 25. And I say, don't you understand? You know how how racist that sounds? Hmm. And they'd go, oh, Bethann, no, are you kidding? No, are you, we're not, I'm not, how how could you say that? I used to, I'm still using, oh, Iman or Naomi. uh, And I go, huh. So in the end of the day, 
I had I could say it to them because I knew them. Hmm. And I believed that this is, wasn't what they were, but I wanted to show them that this is what it is in results. And so, you know, people could listen to me because they knew I'm coming from a good place. And I'm someone who's not looking at them like they really are guilty. I'm not saying they're in, that's in their, their intention. That's very important. Coming up, how models of color disappeared from the runways and how Beth Ann forced designers to bring them back. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. I want to talk for a second about when you decided to leave the industry for a time in the late 90s. It was on the cusp of a huge change in modeling. Many people, they look back at the 90s or the late 80s and they're thinking about Mugler shows or uh, Claude Montana or, you know, (laughs) Chanel or something like that. I used to work for Claude. Oh, you did? Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, they think about seeing the big supermodels like Cindy Crawford and Linda Evangelista and Naomi Campbell and Stephanie Seymour just stumping down the runway. But- I don't know. Things changed in the late 90s in the fashion industry, and especially with regards to models. What happened to the supermodels of the 90s and what kind of came in their wake? Yeah, it, what happened actually was the, it was pretty much the mid 90s. So Eastern Europe, the wall had come down. All of a sudden, scouts could go into Eastern Europe and bring girls into America. Mm. A lot of beautiful, long, narrow hip girls. And all of a sudden now we have competition, even to the American white girl. It's not just to the black girl, it's to the, even the supermodel because they all wanted that you didn't look at the girl so much. You just look more at the clothes. So if hmm. you remember it, most people can remember it. The, the girl was unidentifiable. They all looked exactly pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. They're all blonde, skinny. Look, you know, you couldn't tell one apart if you didn't know better. I mean, I could, but most people couldn't. The hair is pulled back in the chignon and they look like just, just a, you know, a factory of, of like hangers. and it changed the game. And then you, you think it's going to be for a moment. Right. Like it's, in, like it's just a style and it'll pass through. And then it goes on for years. I leave in 1996. I, I walk away from my model agency because I, you know, like I said, when I went into it, I wanted to get out of it. So I walked away from the industry. But then I had these constant calls from Naomi Campbell. Mom, you got to come back. 
this the, the black girl has completely disappeared. <laughs> you got to come back. I'm going, oh, Lord. And so the supermodel, the model of color, they all disappeared. You said that you thought it was going to be a trend and then it kind of became the industry standard. And I remember because I was like in my early 20s at that point in time, late teens, early 20s, and I really started to pay attention to fashion. I got really into it as a hobby and I loved following it and learning all the models' names, which was not easy back then because as you mentioned, a lot of people looked alike. Eventually, things got to a point where you sent out a list in 2013 Naming designers who used zero or only one black model in their shows, demanding change and threatening a repeat if there wasn't any change. And this is after you had already called people out <laughs> like six or seven years before then. And you saw some change, but you didn't see enough. But you get to 2013 and you put together a press release naming names and brands and designers. Calvin Klein, Donna Karen, Armani, and many others. It reads like a who's who's list of designers. Exactly. I don't want to try and embarrass anyone to do anything. Nobody is calling any of these designers racist. The act itself is racism. And the thing I wonder with that is how did you know that the industry would listen to you? I didn't know that, but I know that an industry that's creative and caring in general. Mm -hmm. No leader of that would want to be called a racist, not in this industry. I really believe that they were falling into a pocket of ignorance. And that, to me, is worse. Hmm. So I just wanted to make sure that I clarified that to them because I respect the industry. And I come from it and I developed in it. And I just wanted to give them a chance to straighten up and fly right. Like to see Celine. Everyone loved that brand. Every mm -hmm. black girl who could hold up a couple of dollars together would get a bag. It is the truth. When Phoebe Fowler was there, I mean, they were losing their minds. That's she was the thing. I mean, and and the truth is, you don't see any girl representative of the the people who are buying the stuff. And it was just interesting to watch her and, and Mutual Prada and all of them just turn on a dime and right away put girl of color in. I just had faith. And I was nervous. I can't say I wasn't. You know, someone said, mm -hmm. are you afraid you're going to be sued? I started laughing. <laughs> I'm just reporting the news. I'm not making anything up. To that point, you, you describe your work as helping Black models, but that you're really trying to educate white people in the fashion industry. What did you mean by that? No, I'm really trying to help white people. It, the results is helping people of color. The results of that. But I'm really trying to help white people. And yes, I am. The point of it is to educate them. When I modeled, they would never put black girls, not too many anyway, in, in any of the winter collections. It's almost like they didn't think that we wore clothes in the winter. Now the industry is embraced West Africa so strongly because Africans look great in clothes. <laughs> People of color look great in clothes. So now they're very much embracing that. The only problem is that we're not being able to develop models as we used to. How do you mean? There used to be a time where you could really get time to take care. Like a, it's like the music industry. You can develop the talent. It's not like that in the music industry anymore, hardly. And it definitely is not like that enough in the model industry, fashion industry. There's so many models. Everybody can be a model pretty much now. It's like what happened with Netflix. <laughs> you, can infect, you, can, you, can, you can inflate the market. <laughs> it's hard to sort of like develop a model when there's so many models out there that anyone can be one and mm -hmm. not necessarily do they have a long career in it. Mm. Not like before. Not like before. 
You know, a lot of people see fashion imagery as kind of like frivolous fantasy at best and potentially harmful at worst. But you've been fighting your whole life to have a say in what's in that image. Why is that fundamentally important to you? Oh, man. I just, I don't want our world to be like, a. I used to say, like a Woody Allen movie. I used to use that as expression because Woody would always do films right in New York that you never saw any Black people in it. <laughs> right. But in the end of the day, you just look at that and you just keep saying, that's not, but that's not the street I walk down. You just want it to be integrated. So for me, it was very important. And I'm using this industry to do it. I'm using my way to get people to integrate their thinking and their passion and their their good sense to know more about others. So if there's a black girl and an Asian girl and a uh, redhead in a, a photograph, then it sort of makes people sublimely think, oh, this is normal. Beth Ann, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so fantastic. Thank you for appreciating that you can have a Barbie and still be you. <laughs> Time and again, Beth Ann fought to make the image makers show that Black people are valued. And while some might say there are other things Black people need more than to be featured in an editorial, and I would agree, we do live in a highly visual culture where images are never just something to look at. They have the power to shape our dreams, reflect our values, and perhaps most importantly, make us feel seen. And who doesn't deserve that? Thanks again to Beth Ann Hardison. Her new documentary, Invisible Beauty, is out now. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Liam McBain. This episode was edited by Jessica Placzek. Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Patrick Murray. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.